Hello, everybody, and welcome to this edition of So Important. I am thrilled to talk with Cesar Brioso today about his book, Last Seasons in Havana, The Castro Revolution and the End of Professional Baseball in Cuba. For those who know me, you know that I'm a bit of a Cold War historian, and I'm also a huge baseball fan. So here was a book that brought it all together. But I want to emphasize, you don't need to be a huge fan of either of those things to really enjoy this book. It's terrific, and I'm so glad I have the chance to speak with Caesar today. And Caesar, I would like to welcome you to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Tell us a little bit about what led you to write the book and a little bit about what the book is about. The whole reason why I started writing about uh, Cuban baseball history was my dad. Uh, when I was a kid, he would tell me stories about uh, American players who would come to Cuba in the winter to play in the Cuban Winter League. Um, you know, guys who went on to uh, Hall of Fame careers, uh, Monty Irvin, Ray Dandridge, Tom Lasorda, Don Zimmer. And eventually, uh, when I became a sports writer, uh, I started uh, trying to track down some of these players. They were retirees in Florida, writing articles for uh, newspapers that I worked for, and decided that I really wanted to uh, write a, a, a book about baseball, Cuban baseball history. Um, and that's how the first book came about, uh, Havana Hardball. It dealt with uh, Jackie Robinson uh, training in Cuba with the Dodgers right before breaking baseball's color barrier. And that led to this book, Last Seasons in Havana. This was this picks up uh, after the first where the first book left off. Uh, and it's the 1950s. The Cuban League is now under the uh, umbrella of organized baseball. There's this exchange of uh, players uh, coming to Cuba, but it, it, there's a, a system in place now for how the Cuban Winter League team signed players from the majors. Um, and while this is going on, Bobby Maduro, Cuban baseball entrepreneur, he uh, built El Gran Stadium of Havana where the Cuban League is played. He purchases the uh, Havana Cubans, the a team in the Florida International League, and moves them to AAA as the Havana Sugar Kings. That's in 1954. And soon after that, uh, Castro starts his uh, revolution from the mountains, the eastern mountains uh, in Cuba against uh, Fulgencio Batista. And it, it just explores what happens uh, with the revolution and how that impacts uh, and eventually brings about the end of professional baseball in Cuba. Well, you brought up a really interesting point, which is the tight relationship between the major leagues on the one hand and Cuban baseball on the other. Yeah, that's right. There have been uh, close ties since really before the before 1900. You know, and as early as 1890, I think it was uh, John McGraw, as a young player, came with a, an all-star team barnstorming uh, there during the off season. Uh, starting in 1900, you had uh, Negro League teams barnstorming in, in Cuba, um, as well as individual Negro League players joining the Cuban League. And in the early 1900s, 19 teens, you had uh, major league teams coming. Uh, for barnstorming trips uh, between the end of the, the a previous season and the start of spring training. The Philadelphia A's, the Detroit Tigers, New York Giants, uh, all of them uh, started playing there in the 19-teens or so. And, and, and you also had uh, 
American players for, uh, from the majors and from minor leagues coming there. So really, there had been this, this exchange of players uh, for pretty much the whole first half of the 20th century. It was interesting to see how uh, the major league officials responded to what was going on after the Castro Revolution. Right. Well, there were uh, concerns, obviously. There's this revolution going on, uh, the last uh, 1957, 58, 59, and you had the Sugar Kings playing there in the International League and the Cuban Winter League that had uh, plenty of players, uh, Cuban and American, from organized baseball playing there. And there was some concern. What would happen? Is, are they safe? Um, and then Castro takes over, comes to power on January 1st, 1959. And organized baseball, the International League, starts to think that maybe the worst is behind them and, and brighter days lay ahead. But the, as the, the months pass, there starts to be a great concern uh, among U.S. observers about Cuba turning toward communism. Um, and then there start to be counter-revolutionary uh, movements uh, against Castro. And now, rather than a lot of the fighting and everything happening in the eastern mountains of Cuba, there's a lot more activity going on uh, in Havana. From time to time, there, there are bombs set off, small bombs, protests. And so there's this series of actions and reactions uh, between the U.S. and the Cuban government Cuba uh, starts to expropriate land and eventually take over U.S. banks uh, and such, and 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 Cuba starts a, a trade embargo. So all these things are happening, and while this is going on, baseball's wondering what to do. The International League, Frank Shaughnessy, they come up with a contingency plan in case they feel things get too dangerous that they uh, where they might move the team, uh, which is eventually what happened. And the team that you talk about quite a bit in the book is the Sugar Kings. I think it's a fascinating story of how they developed and they won the uh, Junior World Series in 1960, right before they had to leave. Is that right? Uh, it was 1959. The, the Sugar Kings won the International League, uh, which meant they would go into the Junior World Series against the champion of the American Association. That year is the Minneapolis Millers. That team included Carl Yastrzemski. Uh, they played uh, the first two games in Minneapolis in really terrible conditions. It was uh, snowing, raining, uh, cold. Their attendance was uh, in the hundreds for the first two games. And the league, the International League, decided to move the remainder of the series to Havana because conditions were so bad. It was a seven-game series. Those last games were played in Havana to huge crowds. Castro was in attendance in all those games, uh, often throwing out the first pitch, sometimes arriving late, delaying the start of the game, using that as a, a really a stage, you know, for propaganda, for for lack of a better word, uh, for the new regime. And uh, it was a dramatic finish. Uh, the Sugar Kings ended up winning, um, but that that was sort of the the last hurrah for the Sugar Kings that 1950. 59 Junior World Series. And uh, you talk quite a bit about Bobby Maduro, who was trying to keep it all together in the midst of all of this. Yeah, Bobby Maduro built El Gran Stadium. Uh, that's where the four teams in the Cuban Winter League played. It was all the teams played in Havana. That stadium was built uh, 1946 for the 46 47 Winter League season. And his hope was to eventually bring an expansion team to Havana when he bought the. Uh, the Florida International Havana Cubans uh, and moved them uh, 
to the International League um, as the Sugar Kings. The team's motto was un paso más y llegamos, one more step and we get there. And that wasn't just an allusion to the players being in AAA and one step from the majors. It really was the goal for bringing an expansion team to Havana. Do you think that that could have been achieved if circumstances had played out differently? It's possible. Uh, I found uh, several references from people uh, in baseball talking about the need to expand um, and talking about uh, some of the teams that some of the cities that they would consider and Havana was being discussed. Branch Rickey at one time suggested that there should be a a third major league and that it should be international in scope and that it would include Havana. Uh, So there seemed to be a serious discussion among baseball peoples, people about uh, where they should expand and potentially uh, uh, expanding into international league, international cities. Um, I think if if there hadn't been the revolution, perhaps uh, you might see uh, Havana uh, eventually had gotten uh, a uh, a major league expansion team. Certainly not in the first round of expansion, but it uh, it is possible. And- And one of the really interesting things to me as I read it was the gradual evolution in the change of perspective among the American players. And they started out very enthusiastic. Uh, Tommy Lasorda certainly was a big, a big fan. But as this, as the book goes on, you get Carl Yatsremski and others who are very nervous about it. Well, yeah. uh, When the players were going there regularly during the winter, uh, you know, if you weren't a star player in, in the majors, this is before the huge contracts we see today. You know, unless you were Ted Williams or Stan Musial, when the season ended, you often had to go get a real job uh, working in a local hardware store or whatever. But if you could, here was a chance to play baseball and have almost a working kind of vacation, uh, if you will. Cuban Winter League might have played three or four games a week, which um, allowed uh, some downtime for players to enjoy Havana. Some of them brought their wives and families and and, and made something of a vacation out of it as well. Um, they were well paid. You know, certainly Negro League players who who played there talked about being treated better in places like Cuba in the winter than they had been um, here in the U.S. So there was there was a, a quite a bit of enthusiasm for playing in Cuba and other winter uh, leagues in Puerto Rico. Dominican Republic, Venezuela. So uh, the tension started to escalate and, and, and there were fears. Um, and you talk about how enthusiastic Tom Lasorda was. He, w- he was used to playing there. He had been there uh, several, he played there three winter league seasons, uh, you know, but come somebody like Yastrzemski, he was, uh, I think, 20 at the time. Uh, this was his first experience there. And he's there, you know, during the revolution uh, or, uh, you know, the immediate aftermath where you have uh, the, the sight of soldiers with guns in the stadium, in the dugout, on the field became really common at a ground stadium. And I imagine that could be a very unnerving uh, situation for a young player who'd never seen anything well, like absolutely. that. And the other side of the coin, which you also talk about, is the uh, there's a lot of players from the region who made it to the major leagues. But I think you said the best ones overall came from Cuba. Cuban players, uh, the, the first uh, though that arrived uh, in, in the majors, uh, at least in the modern era, uh, st- that started in 1911 when the Cincinnati Reds signed uh, Armando Marsans and Rafael Almeida. Uh, and you had uh, Adolfo Luca, maybe the first sort of uh, star pitcher. He pitched in the majors for 20 seasons. Uh, Miguel Angel Gonzalez was a contemporary of his, played catcher for uh, the Cardinals for a long time. So yeah, there were plenty of players uh, from Cuba also coming into the majors. Uh, Joe Cambria, uh, 
scout for the Washington Senators, uh, believed to have signed something like three to 400 Cuban players uh, starting in the 1930s. Um, and, and by now, uh, into the 50s, where the, what the book is talking about, you start to get the players that uh, you saw in the, in the 60s, such as uh, Camilo Pascual, Pedro Ramos, for example. Of course, Mini Minoso started uh, in the 40s. Um, and these uh, players like uh, Tony Oliva, Tony Perez, um, they didn't get, they were too young. They didn't get a chance to play in, in the Cuban League, uh, but they were uh, starting their careers just as this uh, transition period was happening. All of a sudden, something that the Cuban people loved passionately came to an end. And what comes out in your book is that there's so much passion for this sport. Yeah, it was as uh, it was the national sport, uh, just like it is, was here. Baseball really became ingrained in Cuban culture uh, in the uh, late 1800s. Uh, it was one way of the Cuban people to express their uh, rejection of Spanish colonial rule during uh, their fight for independence um, in, in the late 1890s, you know, choosing baseball over bullfighting, which was the preferred sport of uh, the Spanish uh, government uh, in control of Cuba at the time. Um, that You know, in exile communities, uh, there were baseball games, uh, you know, whether in, in Key West, uh, Tampa, Ybor City, um, that were played sometimes uh, to raise funds to send back to Cuba for the war effort for the, the battle for independence. Uh, so baseball really became ingrained uh, in the culture of Cuba, what it meant to be Cuban, you know, before even uh, the start of the 20th century. Do you think we'll ever get back to a point where we will have a robust baseball relationship with Cuba? Well, it looked like we might be heading in that direction uh, in December when Major League Baseball announced that they had come up with an agreement uh, with the Cuban Baseball Federation that would have allowed Cuban players to come here and play in the majors without having to defect. Uh, they just needed to be 25 years old and have played six seasons in Cuba, and they would have been eligible to sign um, with Major League teams. That was one of the, the reasons for Major League Baseball wanting to do that is to end the, the defections. Uh, it had become uh, very dangerous and recently years as as these players who were defecting were hiring smugglers and human traffickers to get them out of Cuba and get them to the US major league baseball wanted to end that that way of getting uh, players here but then 3 months later the uh, Trump administration ruled that uh, nixed the agreement Major League Baseball had been given permission to negotiate with the Cuban Baseball Federation by the Obama administration. But after they came up with the agreement, uh, uh, the Trump administration uh, reversed course, uh, saying that the, the Baseball Federation was too closely tied to the Cuban government. Uh, and, and that deal has been nixed. So uh, I don't know where things go from here. You know, I, I suspect we're going to continue to see players trying to defect to get to the majors, potentially. And they're going to continue to hire smugglers. And, and I fear that uh, at some point something really terrible is going to happen to one or some of these players that are trying to escape Cuba. I do hope that that issue gets resolved and that the uh, agreement can go forward. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the power brokers in this, the U.S., Cuba, Major League Baseball, I mean, they're going to continue, but it's those players uh, in Cuba that are kind of caught in the middle of all this, and they're the ones that uh, that I'm concerned for. There's still a lot of great players there, aren't there? I mean, it, it was always a very high level of play in Cuba, wasn't it? 
Absolutely. Even though uh, the International League pulled uh, the Sugar Kings out of Cuba in, nine, in the middle of the 1960 season and the Cuban League uh, folded uh, after the 60-61 season, two weeks later, the Castro regime uh, officially passed a law to uh, ban professionalism in all sports, not just baseball. But baseball continued to be played. Uh, it was a, an amateur model. Uh, they were obviously talented players. You, you saw that in uh, international competitions, uh, the a- amateur series, the Olympics. You, you've seen that in the uh, World Baseball Classic. But most importantly, you've seen that in those players the last 10, 15 years who have defected and the kind of immediate impact uh, some of them have had uh, coming to the majors uh, uh, straight from Cuba once once they defected. I noticed at the end uh, in the epilogue, you kind of reveal a personal side to this story uh, that tied it all together in a very personal way. I'm wondering if you want to discuss that a little bit. Sure. I mean, there's uh, all kinds of personal uh, ties for about what happened. My family, uh, you know, experienced it. They lived it. My uh, my parents were recently married in in their twenties uh, when the revolution happened. They could see what was going on that uh, things were uh, going toward communism. It's not in the book, but at, at one point, one family member who was already here in the U.S. tried to go back to Cuba for the funeral for their mom and and couldn't. And and at that point, my dad said, "We we have to leave." And my my parents applied to leave. Uh, and like something like forty days afterwards, the Cuban Missile Crisis happened. They figured we're never going to be able to to leave. They started a family. I was born, but then they finally had an opportunity to leave on the Camarioca boat lift in 1965. So when I was five months old, my parents, me, and my uh, grandparents on my dad's side came to the U.S. to to escape communism. And and most of my family, in fact, had the the immediate family uh, left Cuba years ago. You know, my my grandfather was one of uh, 11 siblings, and uh, five of them uh, were sympathetic to the revolution. And, uh, you know, that led to many family arguments. And and, and if you didn't uh, sympathize with the revolution, uh, you were ostracized. Uh, So, uh, you know, the the revolution uh, divided families, friends, and neighbors, you know, sometimes never to speak again. Uh, So, yes, this history isn't just history, it's personal. Well, Caesar, thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for writing these books. And thank you very much for being with me for uh, a little time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Uh, I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you.